0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 4, Episode 6. In the last episode, I covered one of the birds the Israelites were forbidden from consuming, the hoopoe. I also spent some time on the Canaanite deity Molech. If you missed that episode, you should go back and give it a listen. And, after just a few episodes, we're at the end of Leviticus. But before moving on to the Book of Numbers, there are a couple of topics left, namely, the festival of trumpets and the concept of blasphemy, both to be covered in this episode. And with that, let's get started. While the holiday named in Leviticus as the festival of trumpets may not ring a bell, the other more frequent name may. Rosh Hashanah is the Jewish New Year, less frequently You will see it called Yom Tura, which literally translates as the day of shouting or blasting. The day is set on the Jewish calendar, which I covered previously. It generally occurs in the fall in the northern hemisphere. The first mentioned in the text is in Leviticus chapter 23, where it only gets a few sentences. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of complete rest, a holy convocation commemorated with trumpet blast. You shall not work at your occupations, and you shall present the Lord's offering by fire." Quote. And that's it. From those couple of sentences, millennia of New Year celebrations. Rosh Hashanah is traditionally celebrated over two days, on the first day of the seventh month on what is known as the ecclesiastical year. Which raises an interesting question. Why would a society celebrate New Years at the beginning of the seventh month, not the first? The first month marks the release of the Israelites from their bondage in Egypt, so it's also the month of Passover. Adding to the complication is that Rosh Hashanah is the first month on the legal calendar is also believed to be the month when both Adam and Eve were created. So, the beginning of human history. Outside of the Old Testament, the date aligns with both the economic and agricultural calendars in Egypt and Canaan. This new year was the beginning of the cycle of sowing, growth, and harvest, with the harvest being marked by its own set of major agricultural festivals, ones I've covered previously. But, not everyone in the region celebrated the new year at this time. Their neighbors, at least the Greeks and the Persians, celebrated the new year in the spring. But the reasons were similar, in this region with year-round growing. Overall, all these societies marked their respective calendars based on an agricultural timeline. But what about these trumpets? Well, they're not the brass musical instruments we normally think of that bear the name. In this case, the trumpet is an instrument also known as the shofar. It was made from a hollowed-out ram's horn. The shofar is traditionally blown each morning for the month of Ulu, the month before Rosh Hashanah. The sound of the shofar is intended to awaken the listeners from their sleep, in both a literal and figurative sense. It's also to remind them of their forthcoming judgment. More on that in a minute. The shofar is not blown on the Sabbath. This horn is blown in specific long, short, and staccato blasts, depending on the time being commemorated. It's also blown at various times during the Rosh Hashanah prayers, with a total of 100 blasts over that day. Before moving on, one quick note. The phrase Rosh Hashanah, at least with its current meaning, does not appear in the Old Testament. In Leviticus, the phrase is all about the sounding of the trumpets. In this regard, it's considered like a Sabbath, only more important, a special Sabbath. In Psalms, it's used in the sense of anointed days. The Book of Numbers also talks about the blowing of horns. In these regards, It's connected to several events in the history of the Old Testament. Events like the binding of Isaac, where a ram was sacrificed by Abraham, instead of his son Isaac. The book authored by the prophet Ezekiel used the phrase to note the beginning of the year and also the lead-up to Yom Kippur. Though some believe this reference may refer to the first religious month, Nizan, the one where the Passover was celebrated. Adding to this confusion is the general structure of the Hebrew calendar, where there are no less than four different New Year's celebrations. The best way for us to understand them is more akin with our change in seasons. Of course, there are the two I've already covered. Nissen is the Lunar New Year, and is when Passover occurs. On our modern Gregorian calendar, this is usually in March or April. a little sidebar about the timing rosh hashanah occurs 163 days after the first day of passover what this means on the gregorian calendar is that it can occur as early as september 5th or as late as october 5th that is under normal circumstances in about 200 years in the year 2214 it will occur on october 6th. also since the 4th century AD, the holiday, well, the calendar in general, has been officially organized so that Rosh Hashanah never falls on a Sunday, Wednesday, or Friday. When the text of the Old Testament, or really any ancient Hebrew text, notes the year of an Israelite king, these refer to the new year that occurs with the start of the Nizam month, But, legal documents, the marking of other holidays, especially those occurring less frequently than annually, like sabbatical years and jubilees, did not use the Passover month, but instead used the month of Rosh Hashanah, as did legal documents like property deeds and contracts. And, I don't think I've mentioned it, but the actual name of the month is Tishri. It, too, is a lunar month. In about that term, it simply means that the passage of the months is marked by the phases of the moon, with each month beginning with the new moon, and each being roughly 29 and a half days. There is a biblical component to Tishri being the first month of the year. That's found in Exodus chapter 23 that reads You shall observe the festival of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. In this, the phrase, end of the year, implies that the new year begins immediately after this time. Some researchers believe that this was a leftover from the Israelites' time in Egypt. The ancient Egyptian calendar begins its new year around this time. There are others that think it potentially goes back further, dating to post-flood Noah. In Judaism... Specifically, in the Mishnah, there is a reference to Rosh Hashanah. The Mishnah was the first major written collection of the Jewish oral Torah. It is also the first major work of rabbinic literature. And this is the second known reference to Rosh Hashanah as the Day of Judgment. What kind of judgment is this? The Talmud gives us a clue. Well, more than a clue. A thorough explanation. It tells us that the three books of account are opened on Rosh Hashanah, wherein the fate of the wicked, the righteous, and those in between are recorded. The names of the righteous are immediately written in the book of life, and they are sealed to live. The names of the wicked are blotted out from the book of the living forever, and those somewhere in between are allowed a restful period of ten days until Yom Kippur, to reflect, repent, and become righteous. The celebration of the holiday actually begins the evening before with the aptly named Rosh Hashanah Eve. This is on the 29th day of the Hebrew month of Ulu, which ends at sundown when Rosh Hashanah commences. Some adherents perform what is known as the annulment of vows after the morning prayer services, which sounds serious, And it is. So, it takes on a somber mood. But then, the mood switches to a more festive one in anticipation of the new year and the synagogue services. Many orthodox men immerse themselves in a mikvah in respect of the coming day. A mikvah is a ritualistic cleansing bath, which tells you which holiday comes next, Yom Kippur, which is described as the Day of Judgment and the Day of Remembrance. Some midrashic descriptions depict God as sitting upon a throne, while books containing the deeds of all humanity are open for review, and each person passes in front of him for evaluation of his or her deeds. The Talmud expanded on the idea of the holiday, which also serves to demonstrate how the holiday has evolved from a simple blowing of a horn. The Talmud reads, The Holy One said, On Rosh Hashanah, recite before me verses of sovereignty, remembrance, and shofar blast. Sovereignty so that you should make me your king. Remembrance so that your remembrance should rise up before me. And through what? Through the shofar. In Samaritan society, the offshoot of ancient Judaism, with at least one good adherent, in their interpretation of the Torah, they celebrate the festival on the first day of the seventh month, and do not consider it New Year's Day. The Torah defines Rosh Hashanah as a one-day celebration, but different sects and different regions interpret this, well, differently, with some celebrating over one day, and others too. But Rosh Hashanah meals usually include apples dipped in honey to symbolize a sweet new year, There are apples in other forms, too, raw and baked. There are also dates, black-eyed peas, pumpkin-filled pastries, leek fritters, beets, and a whole fish with the head still attached. Do keep in mind that most festivals' foods, regardless of the culture, tend to traditionally feature the fruits of the most recent harvest that is being celebrated. There are other symbolic fruits, too. Pomegranates are served to symbolize being fruitful, like the pomegranate, with its many seeds. Also, chala bread is served. This round bread is meant to symbolize the cycle of the year. Similarly, some adherents throw bread or pebbles into water to symbolize the casting off of sins. Other sects perform the traditional prayers near rivers, streams, ponds, lakes, and the like once again thought to symbolize the casting of sins into the water. And that's it for the Festival of Trumpets, or Rosh Hashanah. Which gets me to the last topic from the book of Leviticus, Blasphemy. In Leviticus chapter 24, God tells Moses how to deal with a blasphemer, instructing him to, Take the blasphemer outside the camp, and let all who were within hearing lay their hands on his head. And let the whole congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Anyone who curses God shall bear the sin. One who blasphemies the name of the Lord shall be put to death. The whole congregation shall stone the blasphemer. Aliens as well as citizens, when they blaspheme the name, shall be put to death. End quote. Of course, the first question to answer is What is it? In its most general sense, blasphemy is insulting, showing contempt for, or a lack of reverence towards God. Of course, the term itself also applies outside of Judeo-Christianity, and towards other religions' deities, even sacred objects, or even sacred principles. In Christianity, it's considered a grave sin, not only because it's insulting towards God, but also because it's the opposite of worship. Instead of being reverent towards the Almighty, it's an act of irreverence, and therefore not a mere sin, but the most serious. Given the broad use of the word, it would be easy to fall into a rabbit hole and cover what it means well outside of Christianity. I'm trying to avoid it as much as possible. Just know that nearly every religion holds something sacred, and therefore to be respected and the punishment for violating that sacredness tends to be severe everywhere. And in many cases, these religious crimes are treated as either civil or criminal governmental crimes. Such laws, ranging from hate speech to stricter enforcement, are on the books in at least 87 countries. These include verbal and symbolic speech restrictions against religions. Most of these laws especially the stricter ones, can be found in the Middle East, where speech against Islam is punishable up to death. But to a lesser degree, countries outside of this region, mostly in Africa and Asia, also enforce blasphemy laws, and to an even lesser degree in Europe. More on that in a minute. But for now, the religious implications. In the Old Testament, there are scattered references to blasphemy, usually in the form of outsiders speaking against God, are wayward Jews doing the same. And it usually ends in the offender's death via stoning. Given the clarity of God's direction to Moses, this isn't a surprise. In the New Testament, in Mark, we're told that blaspheming the Holy Spirit is unforgivable. There are also uses of the term in Acts where Jewish people speaking against Paul's message are said to be blasphemy. In Romans, Paul further accuses the strictly adherent Jews of being hypocrites, which leads the Gentiles away from God, and therefore is a form of blasphemy. In Revelation 13, a beast rises from the sea and utters blasphemies against God, along with having blasphemous names written on its head. In Revelation 16, the people curse the name of God, which is considered a form of blasphemy. Backing up a couple of books in Matthew, Jesus himself was accused of blasphemy after forgiving the sins of a paralyzed man. In the 2,000 or so years since that era, the church, then the various churches, have had several pronouncements and attempts at clarifying what blasphemy actually is and the seriousness of the offense. In 1240, an event that has become known as the Disputation of Paris took place. Thinking way, way back to the very beginnings of the podcast, recall that in the history of the King James translation, I covered disputations. These were simply public debates. This one in Paris is also known as the Trial of the Talmud and was held during the reign and in the court of the King of France, Louis IX now sometimes known as St. Louis. I'll avoid puns about a cardinal. Predating the debate were the writings of Nicholas Donnan, a Jewish convert to Christianity, who translated the Talmud. From this arose 35 charges against the Talmud where many passages, specifically those about Jesus, Mary, or Christianity in general, were claimed to be blasphemous, four rabbis defended the Talmud against Donin's accusations. It was all to no avail, as a commission of Christian theologians condemned the Talmud to be burned. This was carried out on June 17, 1244, when 24 wagon loads of Jewish religious manuscripts were set afire in the streets of Paris. That same century, and a few years later, Thomas Aquinas, the Catholic Italian priest, writer, and many other things. Wrote that, if we compare murder and blasphemy as regards the objects of those sins, it is clear that blasphemy, which is a sin committed directly against God, is more grave than murder, which is a sin against one's neighbor. On the other hand, if we compare them in respect of the harm wrought by them, murder is the graver sin, for murder does more harm to one's neighbor than blasphemy does to God. End quote. The 16th century Protestant Heidelberg Catechism stated that no sin is greater or provokes God's wrath more than blaspheming his name. The 17th century British Baptist Confession of Faith stated to swear vainly or rashly by the glorious and awesome name of God is sinful and to be regarded with disgust and detestation. For by rash faults and vain oaths, the Lord is provoked, and because of them this land mourns. End quote. Throughout history, there have been many other such pronouncements, but they all point the same direction: Don't do it, God hates it, It may be unforgivable, and it may be the worst sin of all. All of these, when blended with the combination of church and state, led to the criminalization of the sin in Western society. But over time, the general trend, at least in the West, has been to separate religion from government. In Great Britain, the last person executed for the crime was a one 20 year old Scot named Thomas Aikenhead, who was hanged in 1697. But blasphemy wasn't his only transgression, he was also charged with the related offenses of denying the veracity of the Old Testament in the legitimacy of Christ's miracles. Though, don't think that the crime evaporated in 17th century Great Britain. Blasphemy, along with the related blasphemous libel, remained a criminal offense in England and Wales until 2008, just over a decade ago. Though, as time went on, it was prosecuted less and less. Backing up a bit, in the 18th and 19th centuries, These crimes were interpreted such that promoting of atheism was a crime to the point that it was vigorously prosecuted. The last successful prosecution was in 1977, when the defendant was fined 500 pounds and also sentenced to nine months in prison, but the gelling portion of the punishment was suspended. At that time, and up until 2008, when the laws were stricken from the books, In England, under common law, blasphemy could be punishable by fine, imprisonment, or even corporal punishment. That legal system viewed blasphemy as denying the being of God, contemptuous reproaches of Christ as the Savior, profane scoffing at the Holy Scripture, or exposing it to contempt or ridicule. Finally, in tying it all together, in one of the texts of the modernly uncovered but ancient Dead Sea Scrolls, one referred to as the Damascus document, violence against non-Jews, so Gentiles. This violence is prohibited, with the exception of cases where it is sanctioned by a Jewish governing authority, so that they will not blaspheme. And that's it for Leviticus, in chapter 4 of the podcast. Join me next week, when I'll begin chapter 5 with the summary of the book of Numbers. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.